there. My name's Phil Williams and I would like to welcome you to Audio Angling, the podcast site of fishingfilmsandfacts.co.uk. Carp anglers have been on the scene for quite a few years, have witnessed what has to have been the biggest revolution and measure of change at any level that any aspect of course fishing in the UK has ever undergone in a single generation. The technology, the baits, the amount of clout even that carp fishing currently has puts it in a league of its own. Whether or not that's all for the good is another matter, though it has to be said, were it not for carp fishing, the UK coarse fishing bait and tackle industry would arguably have gone under years ago. If, say, Dick Walker, for example, were to come back, I'll wager he'd barely recognise the branch of fishing he did so much to promote. Whether or not he'd approve is another matter. But it is what it is, driven on by a combination of the popularity of carp as a species, with both the desire and, as importantly, the potential for satisfying that desire in terms of instant big fish success. Rather like the X Factor and other so-called talent and reality TV shows. Shortcuts rather than time-served apprenticeships, it seems, are what everybody wants. On the other hand, the innovation and technology behind the scene which allows all of this to happen, it has to be said, is quite mind-blowing. So to get a take on all of this, plus other carp-related topics, rather than drafting another of the seasoned old guns, which I've already done elsewhere for audio angling, here I'm linking up with carp specialist Tommy Flower, who's young enough to have only ever known the current scene. Right from the onset, I'm going to take the bull by the horns and throw a question at you, which I regularly ask when I'm talking about carp. It's been suggested in the angling press that if you want to catch a British record for most coarse fish species these days, or even a specimen representative of that record, you now have to fish high-protein baits. It was also claimed that as most users of these baits tend to fish them on self-hooking boat rigs, not only was the art of fishing other baits being lost as a result, but also the old and arguably more skillful techniques that went with them, and as a result, a good proportion of coarse anglers were unskilled specimen hunters with a high threshold of boredom, willing to wait for as long as it takes just to catch that one special fish. What would your response be to that? You can understand, especially where the press and that come into it, because obviously they go plug the baits. But um, I don't actually agree with it, I think... Right, yeah, there is a lot of bait companies out there now that are plugging different high-protein baits and that, but you can catch fish on anything, really. Sort of, I was fishing this week, and it's been heavily fished since Christmas. I think two or three fish have come out, everyone's using boilies. I went down with the approach to use maggots and had four runs in 24 hours and landed three of them. So it sort of goes to show you don't necessarily need to use the high protein baits and again that was on a, a running rig no self-hooking boat rigs or anything like that it's more about finding the fish and your watercraft i think a lot of watercraft is lost these days within carp angling you get more people just randomly coming into the sport rather than working their way up catching roach from rod and perch and everything else fishing little canals watching a float now it's just everyone jumps straight into carp fishing and a lot of people are losing the appreciation of other fish. In effect, what newcomers to carp fishing are doing, or trying to do, is buying success by going straight for the big carp gear, then searching out what is capable of producing good fish, without first learning the trade through an apprenticeship, including catching other species of coarse fish. Yeah, I, I understand what you're saying. Especially with that, it's more to supply and demand. Where you got your, sort of, your hardcore fishermen, whether it being carp fishing or... You can even go specimen roach fishing. You're always going to have your people that just want to jump in, 
see these people that have been doing it for years catching these big fish. It's a business at the moment, and all the companies are trying to sell what these people are using. Although them products aren't necessarily the reasons they catch these fish, they don't get told any difference. So I think it's more to do with the press and people not having the actual knowledge that it takes you this watercraft to catch these fish. They just get told, basically, you need to buy this, you need to use this bait with this hook on this line, go to this venue, and you can catch fish, where it ain't necessarily like that. This actually might be a suitable point for you to talk through your own introduction of fishing and subsequent progression through to Big Carp. I've been fishing for as long as I can remember, really. I was probably about four years old when I first went, and... I just used to tag along with my old man on sort of piking trips. It's the lake that I think the first place I probably fished was Brooklands in Dartford. And used to go with him, take me little whip and sit there catching perch and roach and that. Mainly for live bait, but ever since I've, I've been hooked. As I grew up, everyone in my household got nagged to sort of take me fishing, whether it be to a lake, river, or canal. It was more about not catching certain species or big fish, it's just being there and actually catching fish. I grew up catching everything, especially tench. I really used to enjoy catching. I think the biggest tench, even at the moment, is only about seven and a half, eight pound, which ain't very big in today's standards. But it wasn't until oh, I think I was ten years old when I had my first double-figure carp, and that was in Angler's Paradise at, in Devon. And since that moment, you've realised that you could actually catch these big fish that you see on the telly and in the magazines. I think since then, it's just the challenge of trying to outwit the carp thing that's just sort of grabbed me, really. And this presumably led you to where you are today through a catalogue of experiences both good and bad. There's certainly loads that are bad. I don't think that even a blank session is a bad one. You're always learning. I think then that's the reason I enjoy the carp fishing, because you can go and do your match fishing and what else, and nine times out of ten you're going to sit there and catch fish. But with carp fishing, you mentioned earlier about you go have the tolerance to sit there and be bored. But it's more of a hunt. You have to work at it and you have to put the effort in. And as long as you put it in properly, most of your effort, it does equal with orbs. It's the same as anything. I just prefer the challenge and sort of having to work for me fish. And then when you do finally get that one fish, it just makes everything seem worthwhile. Especially this year, I've been to France and caught fish up to £56, which is huge. But to be honest, my favourite fish I think I caught this year was a £23 linear from the Park Lake local to me ass. Simply because I've worked for about four years to catch that fish. And it ain't a monster or anything else, but I don't think that fish has been caught for about three or four years. So it's nice to actually achieve something. What I'd like to do now is explore the current situation under the three subheadings of technology, baits and carp waters. Let's start with the carp. Is the current national obsession with carp fisheries propping up the rest of course fishing? And either way, is it healthy for the sport? I think today, especially with the carp fish, is more just a business. And there's not many venues out there that advertise themselves anything other than the carp water. And it's simply due to the fact that the amount of people that are taking up the sport. Don't get me wrong, I encourage anyone who hasn't fished to go out and try it. And you can't blame the, even the carp fisheries for doing it because it's, it's the business at the end of the day and everyone's trying to make a livelihood out of it. And without carp, do you think then that course fishing participation would have gone down the pan? Yeah, well, it, especially today, it seems there's sort of two headings within sort of course fishing and it's either you're a dedicated match fisherman or you're a carp fisherman. The actual pleasure angler don't have much choice these days. 
And I think it's wrong because you either talk to match fishermen and they don't want big carp in their waters, or you talk to carp fishermen and they don't want anything other than carp, which I don't agree with because I think you need that balance. I've been in carp sessions and got bored and sat there with me float for a couple hours and had probably more fun catching roach and rudd than I have for the rest of the weekend trying to catch carp. Barbel, Tench and to some extent Big Bream also have a specimen hunting following, but for some reason they don't carry the same level of prestige as carp. No, I don't think they have to be honest. Obviously you, you're still going to get your actual specialist anglers that fish for them species, but um, I think the whole problem with it is where it ain't cool unless you carp fish. Well, it's what it seems. It's sort of, you look at any magazine. Even catching small carp don't seem to be enough. You need to catch the biggest carp you can find, which I don't really agree with, especially for newcomers, because you haven't earned the respect for any other fish in the lake. Sort of, I'd catch a roach now. You still unhook it properly and put it back nicely, where you get a lot of people that more or less rip the hook out of the mouth and throw it back. But it's simply because they haven't grown up and learnt basic to respect to anything other than carp. What about all the secrecy, wheeling and dealing, fish theft and the like that allegedly goes with carp fishing? Whichever way you look at it, carp are big business. Presumably then there are some shady characters out there who will do whatever it takes to achieve their aims. I think it's just the same as sort of any business with money that's involved. You're always going to have your people that want to get rich quick. And then you also got your people that want to get rich quick, but then by any means. These are the sort of people that go and steal your fish and illegally import them at massive weights without any care whether they're carrying diseases or anything else. And these are the sort of people that really need to be added from the industry because they run the risk of either putting in carp that have got diseases and everything else, running the risk of killing any other fish in the lake, and also... They're not getting a very good name for the angling trade, really. Anyone looking in who isn't in the industry would only think that it's just killing the native species and everything else. As for the people that sort of do it properly, although they stock carp at big weights, again, you can't condemn them for this simply because it's supply and demand. You've got so many people out there now that want to get into carp fishing and want to catch big fish, you're always going to have people that are willing to set a venue up so you can go and do it straight away. What are your thoughts on stocking the grown on fish rather than letting them grow on naturally? I much prefer catching fish with a little bit where they, I know they've grown on and they're older fish, like as I say with a park lake that I fish. Most of the fish in there now are probably as old as I am. And it's nice that they've got that history behind them. You get more of an established venue from doing that. But you still can't condemn the people that do want to stock big weights simply because it is a business and at the end of the day they're trying to make a living from it. So... They're just making the most of an opportunity that's put in front of them. Although carp are not active predators, having them in a water can still have a limiting effect on the size and range of other species present, and therefore how a fishery will perform due to the way they grub about covering the water and limiting weed growth. To be honest, I'd have to slightly disagree. So I can understand in sort of a man-made water where it would be sort of a clay pit. Yeah, they're going to definitely colour it up. You sort of got to look at gravel pits where you've still got a lot of carp in them, but the water's gin clear. There's an abundance of aquatic plants. Even going back to the man-made ponds and the more commercial fisheries, there's so many people that are neglecting the other species now that they're just basically thriving on the neglect and growing huge. So I think it's the last couple of years that certain commercial fisheries are throwing perch ups and nearly £5 on 
a regular basis, which to find one in the river is exceptionally hard. Is that in part down to carp anglers feeding with high-protein freebies? To be honest, I don't think the high-protein baits are very bad for them. It's the same as anything. All the high-protein baits are trying to do is mimic natural ingredients such as maggots that are full of high-protein, and I find that the carp actually need this. Any baits that shouldn't be too well are the baits that haven't got the highest quality ingredients, which then don't benefit the fish. Take Dick Walker's fish when he caught Clarissa at £44. That, that fish didn't reach that weight simply because it was it had a diet based on high-protein baits. It done it naturally. I don't think the actual bait itself is setting the outline for how the fish are going to go. It's just maybe helping them along the way. What about stocking densities? When they're abnormally high, supported by anglers feeding in freebies, as many run-of-the-mill day-ticket waters are these days, are these fish not more prone to disease? So most places think that the more fish you put in, the more fish you're going to catch. It don't necessarily work like that. So if it ain't very good management of the water either, because all you're going to do is ruin your water quality and your oxygen levels, and you're not going to be able to sustain that amount of fish in, say, a small water. I think the effect sort of... If anything, that mix of sort of high oil baits, well, it's a recipe for disaster for the actual water quality. But with money that they earn from it, it's quite easy. They, right, we've had a fish kill, stick it in and load another for more fish. And people ain't gonna not fish there. It's basically a vicious circle. Can we now move on to baits? A huge and often controversial subject. So let's start with the high protein options, and specifically with boilies. I know boilies were invented by Fred Wilton in the 1970s and to be honest I've never fished anywhere, well I've never fished where boilies haven't been used and never fished in a world where they wasn't even invented. And the fact that there's so many bait companies out there now, choosing from the huge range that they offer is almost impossible. And every time you pick up a magazine everyone's always telling you you need to use this new wonder bait otherwise you won't catch. It's like anything, you're going to have your good companies and your bad companies. And to be honest, I'm quite lucky where I field test for a new up-and-coming company called Bankbug. They're a company that isn't just trying to flood the market with the cheapest ingredients and get as many baits out there. We've put a lot of time into, well, a lot of time, thought and effort, into making that one bait that offers the highest quality of ingredients you can get your hands on that's going to be not only give you a greater chance of catching fish, but also is good for the fish to eat. Especially at the moment, it's very rare to find a bait company with only one bait under their name. But it's simply for the fact that the amount of effort and time we put into making just one. We've got no one under test at the moment. But it's just hard to find a company that only use the highest quality ingredients. And myself, like most anglers out there, have to put your faith in the bait company to supply you with a good quality bait. And fish... If you like them to us, really, they they like to indulge on certain baits and it's finding the, the sort of tweets that will get them craving what they want. So the amount of flavours out there is unreal at the minute. What about subcategories within the general term boilie? I'd say there's three main sort of subheadings for boilies, which would be sort of fish meals, milk proteins, and then the bird foods. They all mix with different bonding agents to create a boilie, but once you've got your actual base, it's the flavours, it's the food signals that the bait should then give off. Because all we're trying to do, basically, is replicate something that is in nature. You ain't going to get perfect, but 
as long as you can trigger them same feeding responses that, say, bloodworm triggering a carp, that's what you're aiming for, really. So what sort of range of flavours are there currently out there doing the business? You've basically got your normal sinking baits. Sinking baits, you've got two different types. You've got like your shelf life bait that have been rolled with preservatives in them to sort of, so you can be left at room temperature on the shelf for a long period of time. These sort of baits I don't recommend using because they don't have the quality of ingredients within them that are any good for the fish. Whereas if you use your more fresh baits, the ones that you have to freeze, the fish actually benefit from eating them. And then once you've gone from them two sort of types, you've then got your pop-ups, which are another main one. Again, these are not made for fish really to eat. They're made to attract them, which is why you wouldn't put out loads of pop-ups as freebies. You put out your freezer baits, your food bait to start with, and you fish your high attractant bait within the middle of that. If, say, you're using a pop-up as a hook bait, would the freebies on the bottom also be the same flavour? Otherwise, would you not be in danger of confusing the fish? Confusing a fish isn't a bad thing sometimes. I sort of, especially when I feed, I always feed different sizes and maybe mix two different flavours in one just to keep the fish guessing. But um, with the pop-ups, I tend to sort of either fish the same flavour and then fish a different coloured pop-up on uh, above the sort of food bait. But even then, when I'm putting the bait out, I'm only fishing it over the top of the bait rather than away from the bait. I'll present it probably an inch off the bottom. Especially with boilers, you want the fish moving in between to then pick up your bait. It's more about getting the fish craving one bait, get them to gorge on it, and then making them slip up on the one with your hook on. And the circumstances under which you'd want to pop up a bait are? It all depends on the rigs you want to use, and uh, again, it's, it's preference to, to the user. I wouldn't use it, say, on gravel bottoms. I think a, a bottom sitting flush to the deck would be better. But um, sort of anywhere or slightly little bit silty or a little bit choddy, just so it can flutter down and sit above from any any danger of your hook basically snagging on anything. Are there any high-protein surface baits? You've obviously got, you know, sort of different companies bring out different floating pellets and that, but to be honest, for surface baits, I don't think you can bake good old chum mixers. Everyone's got different flavours they might want to try or different oils, but for surface fishing, I don't think you can go wrong with chum mixers. And what about my old favourite, bread crust? Bit of bread crust on the edge of a set of lily pads. Nine times out of ten, get the attention of a carp. And another way to present the bread is um the anchored crust rig, which I know a lot of old school sort of carpers would know what I'm on about, and more days people go, oh, that's like a zig rig, which basically it was the first zig rig. Does nobody ever use any of the really old baits these days? Things like peas, potatoes and the like. Going to potatoes, I, I wouldn't know, because I wouldn't really think there's much in there that the carp can benefit from. Possibly if you flavoured it or something like that, but I think to get them to pick a potato up over, a, say, a boilie, I don't think there'd be any comparison. But going on to other sort of particle baits or more natural baits, such as worms or maggots, they're the sort of things that you're trying to reproduce within the boilie. They give off their own food signals, and as I said, when I fished this week, People have been fishing boilies since Christmas and only two or three fish have been out. I'd switch to the maggots and got a response straight away. Tidying up the high-protein end of things then, where in the great scheme of things do pellets fit? How do they compare to boilies and what determines choosing one over the other? To be honest, that's, that's quite a hard question. Um, 
I think the boilies sort of have got more in them and more goodness. The pellets are more, especially high oil pellets, I don't use as often. The main pellet I use at the minute is a scratting pellet. They're the same pellet that fish farms use to rear the fish. But I think, well, to be honest, I couldn't tell you the difference. I know boilies tend to offer a little bit more and possibly the fish get more from them, but they work just as well together. Could it be that pellets are fixed according to what they compress from, whereas boilies can be concoctions of any flavourings with a suitable binding agent? Possibly. I, I think a lot of the flavours, especially within the boilies, are more to catch the angler than anything else. So if you get your standard fish meal bait, or nine times out of ten, that fish is strawberry bait that summer's just made up simply because it smelled good to you. And you sort of say with the pellets, nine times out of ten, if you've got fish sort of rooting around in the edge and that, and if you feel, feed a handful of pellets, they'll switch straight onto the pellets rather than the boilies straight away. So, I don't know, it's just another aspect, another string to your bone, what baits to use, really. And would carp fishing be where it is today, had the high-protein revolution not taken place? Um, I think they would. Maybe your commercial fisheries wouldn't be exactly the same, but I, I think you, especially like your specimen big carp waters, because most of them are gravel pits, and you're fishing for fish that are basically grow that big on a diet of natural food. I'll go back to, as I said earlier, about Dick Walker catching Clarissa. She grew to £44 on a natural diet. She, she didn't get that from eating boilies or pellets or anything else that we use these days. And the same with, you look at the capture of the, the cart called the Black Mirror. It grew that big because there's an abundance of natural food. And I think a lot of these fisheries now are so hard to catch the actual big specimen carp simply because you're trying to get them to eat something they don't need to eat. They can sustain themselves by eating the natural food if within the the weed and everything else. Looking at photographs of carp from commercial fisheries and mentally comparing them to similar sized fish from true wild situations, I have to ask the question, how do they develop such pig-like proportions? Surely it has to come from eating anglers freebies. If so, is that healthy? Big rainbow trout, for example, grown under stocking, have huge livers and tiny hearts, which not only limit their fighting capabilities, but also threaten their lives. It is basically the way they're brought up and the way they're reared on. It's the same sort of the monks growing carp for food. You get certain places that grow fish, they get big quick. Certain venues don't want to sit there for years upon years waiting for certain fish to get big. They want to put them in your lake and then next year they want them to be 40, 50 pounds. Them fish, they ain't got a very long life expectancy at all. And to be honest, it probably isn't health. Me, myself, I prefer going to fish for the older strains that have took years to get to their size so i'm joining the fishery this year that the fish don't go 50 pound they might go 40 but they, they're all old fish and it's took them a long time to get there and they're not your average gut buckets they're your long lean fish big scales nice looking fish whereas sort of you get your carp bread for the commercial fisheries and all they want is as you say gut buckets and pigs within it's more about people wanting to catch big fish rather than worrying about how the fish are doing and it, to be honest it's quite a sad state of affairs when all you've got to do is produce a fish to get massive and then it be the same as the very next one you catch you might as well just leave it on your hook and catch the same fish over and over again. Stress through overfeeding can also come via water quality as uneaten baits rot down affecting oxygen levels. This is what I sort of mentioned earlier about the shelf lives and, and the freezer baits 
your shelf flyers, where they've got the preservatives and everything else in, don't tend to break down. At least with the freezer baits, they tend to break down. Like, you've only got to put a good quality bait in the edge and see all the natural food, like it attracts snails onto it and caddis and everything, and everything will eat them. Whereas certain baits are not good ingredients. They're the ones that you don't want going in your water and really anything you use, you should be using with the highest quality ingredients. And there's a lot of companies out there now that will produce bait for three, four pound. But you've got to think, yeah, that, that's all very good to you because you ain't going to spend a fortune to buy it. But then what exactly have they put into that to produce it for so little where you get a bait that's, say, eight, nine pound and that's the cheapest they can do it for simply because of the cost of the higher ingredient. There is a line of thought that suggests that, in the same way as microbes become immune to antibiotics through overexposure resistance, carp may well do the same with high-protein baits, as manufacturers run out of flavours. Or is a new generation of baits already under development? To be honest, I don't think, well, especially in the near future, that there's going to be any sort of breakthrough within the bait industry. I think it's more about people learning about what the fish want and give it to them when they want it. If you've got carp before they spawn, they crave salt, so adding salt into your bait can give you that slight advantage. It goes back to your water quality, and as we were talking about earlier, your apprenticeship. It's knowing what's in front of you to then act upon what you see. So you're on the bank about to fish and you have a wide range of baits available to you. What is it that would persuade you to start with one instead of another? Could it be, say, seasonality, natural food availability, or do you just guess through experience, then adapt based on the results? Your basic guide is fish mills and your high oil baits in the summer when they want to be feeding, they want to build up, but basically when they spawn. I know sort of salt's been come into it the last couple of years and gone quite big within the carp industry, because it's another mineral they need to get by. As you go into winter, you tend to lose your high oil baits and your fish mills and go more to like your milk proteins or your bird food, your easy digestible baits where the fish haven't got to work as hard to digest what they're eating. They can pick it up, goes through them quickly, straight onto the next one. Where if you're using high oil baits, they still eat them, don't get me wrong, but it'll take a lot longer for that to digest what, what it has eaten to then what they're eating the next one. Talk us through the thinking behind particles. Particles can be an absolutely brilliant bait at times and I don't think there's a carp out there that wouldn't at one point or another drop down on a handful of hemp or corn. But again, it's just reading when it's right to use them. good thing with them is whether you've got such small food items, you get the carp really grubbing about and wanting to eat them. And if you've got more than a few fish in front of you, you can get a real good battle going on between the fish of who gets there first and when that, that's when they throw caution to the wind and hopefully pick up your rig. The good thing about getting them so preoccupied on these sort of smaller baits is even if you catch one, they don't tend to notice their mate swimming off with a hook in his mouth and just carry on feeding. This year I've had some really good hits over particles. I had two thirties and three twenties within about 12 hours of fishing where other people in the lake using boilies again maybe had one or two fish. What particles were you using that day then? That would have been over hemp. Hemp, corn, maize... What else was in it? I think it was mainly hemp, corn and maize. But again, I was adding crushed boilies into that. So you feed a carpet of particles into your swim. But what about the hook bait itself? 
there's loads of different ways you can set it. I tend to find if, if I'm fishing over particle, I don't really want to use a pop-up rig simply because your fish are going to be hard to the ground, the head's going to be down on the floor, then your bait's going to be well above them. So I tend to use short rigs because the fish ain't moving about. It's literally on one spot and chopping rather than when you're boiling fish and they're moving from one bait to the other. Short rigs, smallish hooks because you're going to use a fairly small bait because obviously particles ain't huge. When I spoke about when I had a good session earlier in the year, the bait I was using there was a little tiny trimmed down pop-up. No added weight. All it was would just be critically balanced on the bottom. While they're troughing on the particle and everything else, that's just getting sucked up with it. It's not so much to stand out. It's while they're eating everything, that's just there for them to have a go at. So how do you actually feed for these fish? Is it for days in advance or do you do it just during the session? I'd never really get the opportunity to pre-bait on any sort of waters I fish because I either live too far away from them or, or they're always busy. So all I'd like to do really is get a decent amount of bait out as soon as I get there. Especially a particle, you can lose probably three to four kilos straight away. Most of that's going to get eaten before it even hits the floor by the silverfish. By the time the carp move in, they'd literally go through it. And it's more the fact you just got to keep it trickling in, keep them in the spot. And it tends to be, especially when you get them going, the more bait you keep putting in, the more fish you hold in front of you, then the more fish you tend to catch. Are we talking fish mainly at the small to medium end here, or will the bigger fish also regularly join in too? As I say, I caught my personal best common this year over particles, which was £34 and 4 ounces. I had a £30 mirror in the same session, a £26 common, a 24 mirror, a 22 mirror, and a high double. So you're not talking little fish, it's big fish are quite easy slip up to them as well. Where do nuts fit into the particles picture? I hear these can be a bit on the controversial side. Uh, I've never really been a great user of nuts. I've, I've used them a few times with quite good results, really. I think the main problem with them now is people don't prepare them and don't have the knowledge behind them. So I'm not overly informed on, on anything to do with nuts. But it seems to be that the carp don't digest them as well as sort of your boilies or your other baits. I think fish... Well, especially when not prepared properly, they're not very good for the carp. And although you could buy them from the shop, it is quite dear, so you get quite a few people doing it themselves. And without the knowledge of actually preparing and the knowledge of feeding as well, we had people down the park late this year putting a couple kilo out for an afternoon session, and then the fishing would be dead for the next three, four weeks, simply because the fish ain't getting nothing from them but are still eating them. So what's all this about them swelling up inside fish causing digestive problems? With the baits that are properly prepared, I don't think there's any problems at all. It's more to do with the fact where people haven't got the knowledge and preparing themselves. Then they'd swell up, which then the fish don't agree with. But if you went to the shop and bought, say, I know Dynamite, I think, do them, and different companies, they do your prepared baits, which should all be fine. It's more to do with the fact people buying them before they've been boiled or made up, and then using them. That's the problem. Let's talk tackle now. In your opinion, has it peaked yet in terms of technology and quality, or is there still more to come? I think there's always more to come. There's always something that no one's thought of. Take, for example, the, the spawn that's been released. It sort of took the idea from the spawn, but now you don't get no spillage and... 
just saying little and so simple has made such a big effect. You can put bait out at, I think they was using one at the show last weekend and someone was casting it over 220 yards, which is mad because I can't even cast a lead that far. It's just certain tweaks. I think the way technology is going, it, things will only get better. What would you say the biggest technological advances are taking place then? Is it down at the business end of things, the hand tackle, or both? You can get rods that will easily, as I said, punch things like 220 yards, where you go back 10 years, you'd have been lucky to 160 yards. I know my rods are meant to be distance rods, but some of the things you get out now, it's basically like the rods doing the work for you. So what about developments down at the business end? Any sort of rig tied up decently will catch fish on any day. And and again, I'll go back to saying about the watercraft and everything else. It's, it's about knowing to use something at the right time, whether you're fishing over gravel or you're fishing over silt or weed. It's basically reading what's in front of you then to act on what you know. But um, with the way everything's sort of being brought out at the moment, it's, again, it's, it's just going from strength to strength and... Your line is so camouflaged now, and you've got your lead putty that pins everything down, and your hooks, you get little file kits now that you can sharpen your hooks so they're, like, needle sharp. The more time goes on, you will progress slightly, but you won't get nothing that is revolutionary, I don't think. Give us your take now on business end presentation. Obviously, you've got your hair rig, which did revolutionise fishing, and change everything really. Even though you've got your hair rig, your different rigs utilise it differently, like the way you get certain fish feeding when you've got them really going for it and you hook a fish and get a drop one by lengthening it that little bit more so the bait goes back but your hook's basically ready to catch hold. It's just little tweaks and basically it's putting the effort in so you're fishing and working it out. But other than sort of your standard hair rig, there's so many variations these days it's, it's mad and I tend to find that especially in the magazines now every week you pick it up and you they just say oh new rig new bait you got to do this to catch these fish it's a load of rubbish I've got three rigs that I use that's it one's a pop-up rig one's my standard sort of bottom bait rig and one's for solid bags and that's what I use they don't change very much and I catch some really good fish on them I'll start with my pop-up rig it's called a multi-rig, and all it is, you put a loop on, you slide the loop through your hook, and you put a little, it's called a, a rig ring, that slides over the loop, and then back through, so basically it loops onto the hook. Then you tie your pop-up onto the rig ring using um bait floss or dental floss, and you can have that whatever height you want it off the bottom. That's me one main rig that I use, especially over boilies, because when you boilie fish and you put a spread out, your fish are moving from one bait to the next. So your pop-ups are literally, it doesn't matter if it isn't sitting hard to the deck, because as they come across, they're moving, so as soon as they suck that in, that should be nailing them in the bottom lip. So what height would you be setting this above the bottom? It all depends, really. If I know the bottom ain't too weedy or too choddy, I'm usually fishing about an inch, but if I know there's loads of leaf matter on the floor or a bit of silkweed or anything like that, I want it to sort of be sitting on top. And the only way to find that out is if you're having a mark about with, with the lead or in the margin and you can see it, which is nice. But um, again, it's sort of knowing what you're fishing over and going back to your watercraft. If you're fishing over smooth bottoms or gravel, I tend to go back to your bottom bait rigs. And nine times out of ten, I'd fish that as a snowman. 
you get your main boilie on the bottom and then maybe a little coloured pop-up on top just to sit up and stand out from your loose feed. And for your normal run-of-the-mill rig? It's called a KD rig, and you'd use it with a curve shank hook. Obviously, it's just a little bit more bent than a um, normal straight hook. It's tied exactly the same as, as your knotless knot, but all, all you do differently is when you put your hair through and you, you whip it onto the hook, you do two turns and then pull your hair above the whipping and then whip underneath. So when the bait pulled down and the hook link's pulled, the hook sits at a really aggressive angle, which tends to take hold quite well. I'd use whatever size hook length that I feel suitable at that time and day, and then I'd run that up onto a little ring swivel. So you've got the big ring and then the small swivel, which goes inside your leg clip. And what I do differently to most people is I want that leg clip, I don't want it bolt rigging, I want it to slide off easily. And then on that leg clip, I'd have whatever lead I was using at the time, and then onto some rig tubing, which pins everything down and keeps it out of the way. I'd never really use a bolt rig, to be honest. All you get, when they pick the rig up, they feel the slight weight of the lead, and as soon as they try to lift it or anything, it just slides away. I find, especially these days, that you get the fish sitting there, and they know what they're doing, they're they're shaking their heads to try and get rid of it. You said earlier that trace length will vary day to day. So what, then, are the factors that might affect this, and why? If I was fishing over, say, slightly silty bottoms or something like that, I'd up the length just in case the lead pulled into the silt just to keep the hook and the bait above it or fishing over like big spreads of boilies if, if I weren't fishing a pop-up rig then I want a fairly long hook link just so they can pick it up and as they're moving off set the hook but if say I was fishing over particles then I'd be fishing a short hook link because the fish won't be moving about as much they'll be stuck to one area feeding hard on the bottom so I want them to basically move an inch and get now rather than with, with your boily fishing, they can come down, pick your bait up, and then move off to the next one. They're going to hook themselves. So again, it's sort of knowing what you need for what you're using. When you say a short ring for particles, how short is short? I've gone down to two to three inches before. If I know they're feeding hard and they're feeding on the bottom, then I would do that short. But the only thing fishing that short, then I would probably opt for a drop off lead simply because I don't want that lead moving about so close to the fish and possibly unlodging the hook. You also mentioned the solid bag rig. It's not really a rig, it's more of a method. It's a solid PVA bag with the KD rig again and a critically balanced bait, but a short KD rig. So I was particle fishing. So basically I want everything to sit nice and neat inside the bag, hook link pulled straight and then... Obviously, you lose feed, so as the fish come up, you basically the fish are coming in for that one mouthful. They're not going to be sitting around to feed. They're coming in for that one mouthful, and then they're off again. So I want a nice little hook link. Everything's all neat and tidy. Nothing looped up. And I've had some really good results on that. As I say, it was the first time I filmed in Wyke and Graham in Devon, and I um, really struggled to get a bite on, on this lake, and I could see the fish in front of me. Just couldn't get a pick up, and I was fizzing up. And eventually I switched over to a solid bag, so we'll keep everything nice and tight. If there was any leaf matter out there or a bit of weed or anything, it was all going to be a nice little pile. So when the fish come in, they suck the whole lot. And I think I resulted in seven runs and five fish, which on the lake I was fishing is exceptionally good. Earlier you mentioned camouflage line. 
But to one extent, does line choice actually make a difference? I tend to go as dark as possible, really, like either a dark green or a sort of blacky colour. I know you can get your fluorocarbons that are almost supposed to go invisible. I think it's more the fish feeling your line and then knowing that something's up. It's more about confidence for yourself. I think if you can't see it, then you don't think the fish can see it, which, as long as you've got confidence in what you're doing, you do tend to fish better. When you say not being able to see the line, are we talking here of traces or real line? Both, really. I sort of, especially these days, everything's gone so mad about your sinking lines, your floating lines, and people going about different thicknesses and everything else. Most of the time, as long as I'm not fishing near snags or anything like that, or in, as well, if I'm fishing in close, and you want it to be quite slack so the fish can move through and won't be bumping into anything. You want everything sort of pinned down, kept out of the way, and kept as natural as possible, really. And that goes for your real line and your hook link line. So where do you sit in the mono versus braid debate? I don't really agree with braid, simply because I've seen it. It acts as a cheese wire. As soon as that rubs up against a fish, it ain't going to be good. You've only got to muck up a cast and it cuts into your fingers so quick. So if you'd imagine that on your fish and you've got that pulling against you, it's not going to be good. Mono, the thinner you go again, the more it's going to act as sort of a cheese wire. So, personally, I always tend to go for something either quite thick or use tubing just to protect the fish that little extra bit. Well, I personally like mono, if for no other reason than it provides some cushion through its stretch. Yeah, with the braid, you've literally got no give or anything. That's what you feel is what you get. At least with the mono, you've got that little bit of cushion and, as you say, it just gives it a little bit extra. If you recall a comment I made earlier that if Dick Walker was able to come back, he'd be absolutely gobsmacked at the tackle baits and stocking of today's carp fishing scene. Yet even back then, he was still able to catch big fish with what must now seem like antiquated techniques. The question is, do we have to fish the way you do these days to get a result, or are people simply jumping on the bandwagon urged on by the press? To be honest, the older ways are probably better. I know you sort of... It's drilled into you now that you need to be fishing miles out in the middle of the lake with the newest rods, newest reels, heaviest leads, newest bait. But you don't. You've only got to look at modern-day carp fishermen at the top of the tree, take Terry Earn, for instance. He can turn his hand to catching fish in the edge on a float. It's more about learning everything and sort of another string to your bow. I think with Dick Walker, it's more about water skill and watercraft, knowing what they're doing and acting upon what he's safe. So it'd probably outfish most people these days. Which takes the whole interview full circle, insofar as serving an apprenticeship and understanding watercraft is a far better approach than browsing magazines than walking into a tackle shop, armed with whatever money it takes to try to buy a result. On the other hand, it's also easy to see how younger anglers could be seduced. Hopefully, this talk through will provide at least some food for thought. My thanks then to Tommy Flower for giving his opinions to us here. <laughs>